Welcome to Scottish Business Network podcast. I'm Christy Nesson, co-founder of Scottish Business Network, and I'm delighted to be jointly recording these podcasts with my SBN member, Fraser Allen. And today I am equally delighted to welcome Tina Matembe, CEO and founder of Moneymatics. Named by the Scotsman newspaper in 2020 as one of the top five most important players in Scottish fintech. Tina is a Saltair Fellow, a chartered banker and a lawyer and has worked in UK financial services and internationally for the United Nations. But Tina in 2018 identified a gap in financial capability and enterprise education within communities that had migrated to Scotland. And she was especially concerned about the lack of good financial role models in communities and how their young people's view about money were distorted. So Moneymatics was created to empower communities to become financially independent. Welcome, Tina. Thank you so much, Christine, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Delighted. Now, Tina, as I always start, what's the view from your window today? I have a beautiful view of the Edinburgh Waverley train station because I'm from where I am, I can see the castle, just a little bit of the castle and uh, not the train trucks, but the signs leading to the train station. So a beautiful view. And the sun's out in Edinburgh. Oh. Isn't the sun always shining in Edinburgh, says the Glaswegian here. That's a lovely view. And as people are listening to this across the world, I'm quite sure they can picture where you are, Tina. So Edinburgh wasn't where you originally started off in life. Tell me a bit about where did you grow up and what was family life like for you, Tina? Oh, thank you for the question, Christine. Absolutely. I grew up in sunny, sunny Uganda, and I mean that sunnily, <laughs> 23 to 24 degrees on average all year round. It's a, a tropical country that goes across the equator. So sleeveless tops, shorts, that's the kind of outdoor play all day, most days. That's how I grew up. I grew up, um, I'm, I'm one of four. I'm the eldest of four children. And my mom and dad, uh, we were a nuclear family, born and raised in Uganda, very entrepreneurially driven. Um, I always keep teasing my parents because I was sitting at a boardroom table from the age of four, five, from I could speak. We would um, make decisions about the business. My parents run a a textile industry in in Uganda. So we were sitting down and, and, you know, taking part in running the company, or so we thought. <laughs> um, but very entrepreneurially driven. Primary school and secondary school in Uganda, as well as university, actually. My first degree was in Uganda as well. So that's a bit about where I grew up and my upbringing. Well, my next question is about early years and uh, the, the shaping of your early years. But the shaping of your early years sounds that it was your mum and dad and and their own businesses that did that influence your career choice, Tina? Absolutely did. Um, For one thing, it was very constantly creatively looking to solve problems. So I've always been 
um, if there's a problem, we need to find a solution. And absolutely, the solution sits with us. So don't wait for anyone else to make it happen. You can do it yourself. Go out and use the resources you have to, to make the most of a situation. Um, and, and one of the things my mom would always say is, you know, you, your resources are all you've got, so make it work. Your network is your net worth. We um, did that a lot because for business, when, you, when you're running a business in Uganda, it's very different to running it out here, but you kind of, you're as good as your word. Your, your trust and, and honesty are a very key part of doing good business or succeeding. So we, you know, we're always at a golf club sitting and trying to make relationships and be good for who we were. So, yeah, grew up just really always knowing that if there's a problem, I need to sort out the resources and make that problem go away, basically. Very interesting. And, and that piece about trust and, and network, I think, you know, it's such a key element of, of business, Tina, and one I'm sure you, you've brought through your career. But that career started, you studied law at university in Uganda. And then, am I right in saying your, your first job was with the World food program as an analyst in, in Uganda. Are you able to share more about this interesting role? What attracted this qualified lawyer to work for the World Food Programme? Absolutely, yes. So the, the, the UN was always something that fascinated me. We had done a lot around international law um, and I always had this fascination about how law worked in different countries, how uh, policies are shaped uh, around uh, that sort of thing. So I had applied for an internship in my fourth year at university and so I had the opportunity to do something called the Law Development Centre where you go and, and choose an area of practice. So international law was what I was keen to do. So I ended up in the UN and um, interestingly working on a, on a food uh, program, sustainability pro project around helping people to not just receive aid, because um, again, one of the things that we were always keen to look at as lawyers was the impact and effects of aid on, on countries and communities. So taking people away from the charity model where, we, where we're trying to say, let's give people, let's not give people a fish, let's teach them to fish. And literally, the project I was working on was a fish pond project where we were trying to enable communities to learn how to do fish farming so that they would not have to continually depend on aid from the UN, uh, from the World Food Programme. So I'd look at policies and analyze them and also looking at impact and what that looks like, you know, longer term. Very interesting, very, very humbling, very humbling job that was because it took me out of the, my comfort zone. I had grown up in the city, in the capital, fairly um, middle class, I would say. And I'd never really um, connected at the grassroots, so to speak, until that time. That was my first actual grassroots engagement because you, you were setting up these fish farms in, in very, very rural parts of the country, sometimes actually across borders but the most rural places with no electricity, with people just trying to come up. And that was my first, um, my first look at the grassroots as it was, because I'd grown up in the city. So very interesting job. Absolutely. And I can already see, because I know how this story develops, Tina, but I can already see that that grassroots level of, of working has, has impacted on you and your, your career later on. 
But then it was all change. Tina, uh, as you and I have discussed, you came to the UK on the highly skilled migrant programme visa and arrived in the UK. Tell me a bit more about that that visa and what was it that attracted this this lawyer with this great work experience today? What attracted you to that visa programme? So interestingly and funnily enough, it was on a whim, first of all. When when my husband had proposed to me, I had told him one of the key things was we're going to have and raise try and raise children outside Africa. That was just this thing that was just a joke at first. And then um, we put our CVs online. My husband is an accountant. His background is accountancy and he's a pretty good accountant as well. So when we put our CVs online, he got headhunted by a recruiter, uh, interestingly based in Edinburgh, who was keen to have us come up. And so we, we had to find a way to come through. And there was this highly skilled migrant program, which was basically attracting professionals who met a certain criteria to come out here on a two-year visa. And after that, if you are meeting the points and earning the amount of money that the visa required, you could stay on for another three years. And then we had the choice to become permanent residents. So that's the very uninteresting or, or funny way we, we, we came. So applied for this highly skilled migrant visa and came initially hoping to stay in London. But all the work, and I keep teasing Andrea and saying she must have had this up her sleeve when she had hunted us. She knew she wanted us up in Scotland where she was, but she had eased us into it to say, oh, London's fine, but, you know, come and try out Scotland. And of course, when you come to Scotland, you just it, it, you, we just could not justify going back down to, to London. So that's, that's how we ended up becoming properly Scottish. Oh, and we are so blessed to have you here, Tina, absolutely. And I'm so delighted <laughs> that the, the joys of London didn't detract from coming coming to Scotland. But again, as, as you and I have, have discussed previously, it was a challenge for you, understandably arriving in, in quite a different culture. Um, and you found some challenges there at the beginning and, and struggling to connect with communities in Scotland. Now, you have a very interesting story to tell about how you engaged with the Ugandan diaspora here in Scotland. Can, can you share a bit more about that, Tina? <laughs> Absolutely. So when we, we came and settled here and got jobs, we, we started working. I was working for a bank and my husband was, was interestingly working for the same bank, for the Royal Bank at the time, but uh, doing very different roles. We were, it was awesome, we were, you know, working, but we didn't know anyone in Edinburgh or Scotland. And what I found very interesting was that work and home life or outside work life was very, very different. Typically in Uganda, you make all your friends at work or school. You know, you, I mean, you, you've grown up in, you've gone to the same schools. I was in a couple of boarding schools, you know, where you, you, you have a friend group already made for you. And here we were trying to make friends at the workplace and would invite people to come home for a coffee and no one would agree. You know, no one would, everyone would find it strange. They want to stop either at work or go to a pub. And for me, a true invitation of friendship was having you come to my house and cook a meal. And then you invite me to come to your house. Let's see how we live, that sort of thing. 
So I'd get very offended when no one would ask me to, to go to their house. You know, it's like, how are we just at work and we're smiling and laughing, but it doesn't go any further. It's crazy. And so we had that yearning and very deep loneliness for, for several years, actually. We had our, our daughter and it was just us. My, my our parents came over to support us with that, but we never had any real deep connections. And one day our daughter was one, so we'd been here about maybe two and a half years at this point. And we are in the Asda car park in Livingstone, trying to go and get our shopping. And I'm putting the child in the trolley and I see my husband running off uh, in a direction. And I'm like, yep, he's lost the plot for sure. Cause I don't know where he's going, but he's going really quickly. <laughs> and uh, about 20 minutes later, he comes back to the car park, to the car where I'm still stranded. He's gone off with the keys, mind you, so I can't leave the car. I'm with a baby in the car park. He's run off. I'm, I'm literally, I'm, do we need to call the police? Has he gone mad, you know? And he comes back with a couple. And what had happened was he had a lady speaking a dialect from Uganda called Luganda. It's a language from Uganda, and he hadn't had the language in two and a half years. So when he had the lady talking and she was walking towards the doors, he literally ran after her. He was like, I don't care who you are. You have to know that I'm from Uganda. How are you doing today? You know, um, and they were friendly. Bless them. We're still friends to this day. We got to know them. They had a party coming up. They, they had a baptism for their child at the weekend. They invited us over. We went over and oh, how long have you been here? Or oh, over two years and we've never met anyone. We've never eaten the food here. So we got talking about, my goodness, what would it be like if we had an idea of just everyone bringing some ethnic or authentic food and, you know, just having a party because there must be many people in this situation. And there's so many other people from the diaspora that we've just never met. Um, and yes, that's how that started. That's, that's how that journey <laughs> went. And from that, we, we went ahead to, to make a, a, we arranged a party. We thought we we're going to be just 20 or 30 people at a potluck, had several hundred in a hall. Um, that was my introduction to health and safety. <laughs> Cause in Uganda, if you want to, to make a party, you just turn up, bring the food, people and music, and that's it no time limits, no numbers. So yes, that was my interesting segue into community in the UK. And I think that is such an important story because in a very small way, I had a similar experience moving from Scotland down to London. And you're right, when you're only meeting people through work situations, and particularly here in London, where everybody is spread miles around, that it may seem a small thing to people who've only ever lived in their same communities or upbringing. But your point there about inviting someone to your home, because that is back to your comment about trust, but it's such a big thing. I know it was several years before I was invited into somebody's home here in London for dinner. Mm. And it was mm -hmm. such a big thing that, and I, I don't think people realise quite how important that is, Tina. Is that fair? Absolutely, absolutely. Because it's um, and and especially where we, it's it's a sign of yes, I've accepted you. You're welcome into my home, and um, never having that invitation just makes you feel not outcast per se, but on the fringe of society. 
Yeah. Oh, I completely empathize with you, Tina, there. But you built this community. Meanwhile, you and your husband were working your careers in the financial services at RBS. But another idea was running alongside that, Tina, Passion for Fusion. Can you tell us a bit more about this initiative? Absolutely, yes. So um, that springs on from their story with the, when we had the food at the potluck. We had, um, there's, there's a Ugandan Independence Day. It's usually the 7th of October, the 9th of October. Um, it is the 9th of October every year. And so, again, based on the back of that, we're like, oh, we could do a, you know, a celebration and try and celebrate culture and that. And we started doing these events. And because we were um, the ones that had done the, the, the event, you know, the first time, everyone keeps looking at you from the community. It went really well. We had a lot of dancing and music and food and, and communities. So many Africans of different, um, you know, from different countries all turned up. And it was such a good night. But then the community starts looking to you to solve other problems. Guys, you, you've done this. You've, you've, you've put the party together. We're really struggling with this type of thing. So can you help us to do this? And by the way, we need to, the children also need to engage more often. So you start, you, you automatically find yourselves becoming community leaders, unknown to us. <laughs> we started off wanting to, to just do a party and have a bit of fun. But you start being the, the go-to for the community. So one of the key things was that young people were not engaging um, as well. So we're trying to put on activities for youth, you know. And so we, we set up a thing, Passion for Fusion, to try and advocate for young people, getting them involved, getting them out and about. So sports and um, the arts, we, the first two projects we did were an arts project, trying to get them to understand their history. So we did something called Colors of Africa, where we were talking about roots and we talked about the different parts of Africa and what that looks like. So a bit of history and education and also sports activities. So to try and, 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 and get young people involved in the community. And that grew arms and legs. We could no longer hold it informally. We had to, to set up as a, an organization and formalize that. Um, and that's, that's how that got set up. And, and am I right in saying Passion for Fusion, while well, you're not involved in it, is still going at the moment, Tina? Absolutely, yes. There's, uh, we, still run, we still run activities for young people, sports uh, activities especially, and the clubs have grown so much, uh, young people from all sorts of um, ethnic backgrounds. So it's still up and running, it's going strong. And yes, it's awesome, awesome work in the communities. So there you are. You're, you're the professional in the financial services. You're a community leader, more by default than you discovered you were. Passion for Fusion is running along. But am I right in saying, Tina, there was also another idea that you were becoming aware of, which then led to some quite pivotal moments for you, the Saltire Programme, and Moneymatics moment. What was the journey from RBS to, to Moneymatics and, and in between the Saltire program? Absolutely. Um, good question. So as this was all happening, um, remember I told you the Kappa conversation was my daughter was around two, 
to three at the time. So by this time, Passion for Fusion's going. I'm still at RBS and that. And um, she's turning around seven, eight at the time. And we start noticing the big disconnect in her understanding of money and our own. So growing up, money was just the second nature thing. We talked about it at the table. I mean, as I was saying to you, I was at a boardroom table from five. You're talking about problem solving, you're budgeting, you're, they're telling you there's you know, resources that need to be bought. So money and those conversations were second nature to me. And cash was very physical. We either had cash, we had sales, or there was no money. And therefore, it was something that was tangible. My daughter was money to her, was this magic wand that we had on cards. The cards were just magic ones. She could magic it and a toy would come up. And there was just no real and seeming understanding of money. And when I went out to the communities, I found that many of the other parents from the immigrant communities were struggling with the very same problem. Twofold. One, either themselves having come and been trapped by that, because when you come here and it happened to us as well, there's so much debt in front of it. Debt seems so easy to take up. You can take chairs on higher purchase. That was absolutely crazy. You can get a TV on credit. That was not something we grew up with. And there's this very different relationship with money and banking that either for the parents that we were chatting to, were either had been trapped by that and got into debt, which means they were very heavily indebted and had no way of translating good money habits to their young people, or they just had never had these conversations of money because money was so different from where they were coming from to where they were. So it was a, a big gap in the market. And we just thought, my goodness, this is serious. We need to be helping young people to understand money for what it really is. Yes, the UK has great advantages. You have more access to your banker. There's more access to credit and that. But hey, it comes with responsibilities and someone has to know that from an early age. So ooh, that just raised this whole other host of things. And, and with my background in finance, I was like, this has to be done properly because we are leading on the territory of financial education, financial well-being. There's going to be regulations in place. We need to do this properly. And so um, what I did then, I was looking for, because I knew how to do business in Africa. I was, you know, put me in Africa any day, put me in Uganda at a heartbeat. I have the trust already. I have the honesty. I have the network. I'll, you know, I'll be able to get my way around. I had no way of understanding how to do it in the UK. So I recognized that I needed to tap into my mom's favorite statement. My network is my net worth. I thought, well, I need to, to create some sort of network here. I need to understand, one, how business is done here. What does trust look like? What does running a business look like? And I need people that can vouch for me. So I came across the Saltier Fellowship, uh, awesome program, got invited to, to a few interviews for that. And that's how I got involved with the Saltier Fellowship, got a place and um, left RBS to go and do the fellowship because at that point um, I knew for sure that manimatics had to be something that I could, um, I had to be excellent. I felt like it had to be excellent for the UK standard. And I wasn't sure that I could translate that with my Ugandan background. So I, I knew I was good from a Ugandan perspective, but was I good for the UK? I needed to, to test that. So uh, the Saltair Fellowship, awesome program. It's an MBA styled practical business leadership program 
went away to the States, um, you know, immersing ourselves in business, understanding uh, very, very interesting thing that I, sticks with me till today i grew up thinking that copying was bad you know copying someone is not great you want to be authentic and original well the saltier taught me that no the, the, the key thing here is to learn from other people around you and see how you can add value very different very different mindset from how i had been brought up um, copying to me was just not supposed to be done so that was good very good for networking good for learning the business language um Again, from a Ugandan perspective, I speak literally. If I don't like something, I'll tell you, no, I don't like that here. Someone will say that's interesting. That word interesting could mean a million things, you know, and I didn't know this. So very, very interesting and very good grounding for um, setting up Manimatics. That is a fantastic story. There is so much there, Tina. It, I mean, it all gets back to about trust and, and networking but I think that the message that was coming through loud and clear and, and you're referring to how you determined about understanding financial capability amongst youngsters was within the the immigrant community and yet that is something as you must have found now as Moneymatics has grown it's across all levels of society this that you can just tap in rather than seeing hard cash. Is that your experience now that it's across all divides and, and, and all groups and all ages? Absolutely, Christine. I can't emphasize that enough. In fact, we have now um, progressed the work at Manimatics to include families as a whole. And we actually do uh, more work with adults and communities because there's two key problems that happen. One, um, money not being a tangible thing when you've been brought up with it being tangible gives you this false sense of euphoria. You know, you just, you feel like, oh, I could, it's something I can think about tomorrow. So you don't realize how much you're raking up in debt. It's a whole different way of doing things. And that very tap in, tap out makes things so accessible. And that means you become vulnerable much, much quicker. Then there is the whole other thing that we don't even ever realize that here, uh, most people who are immigrants and coming in here don't realize the impact of the footprint. Everything you're doing is being scored against you. Your postcode affects the amount of money you're going to pay in your insurance. How crazy is that? That your postcode can determine how much insurance you pay. Your postcode sometimes determines whether you're going to have to pay your energy bill by pay as you go or by you know, a monthly debit card. And that's things that you don't understand. So it's very important to provide education and help people to marry money in the UK with money from where they're coming from. Absolutely key, especially now with the cost of living crisis. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I know your business has been running 2018. Is that correct, Tina, that it was established? But there, that's right. there is now even more requirement for all the reasons you've just so eloquently described because of this cost of living crisis there given you're now four years into this business where do you see the, the business going because we are facing into you know potentially facing into um significant uh, deficit within the uk across all levels of society we're all facing a cost of living crisis. 
has the business adapted and your vision for it going forward because of current situations? A hundred percent. Yes, Christine, you're, you're quite right. So um, one of the things we've, we've recognized and a key part of what we do at Moneymatics is understanding that financial struggle is all too real for everyone at the moment, but even more so for people from underrepresented communities. Um, and so our focus is on helping because there's so many systemic barriers that compound um, the problem and make preventable vulnerability an issue. Uh, the example I was giving you about not being in a system, not having a credit rating or your postcode, which you probably went and rented a place not knowing how it was going to affect everything can determine your financial footprint, right? So financial vulnerability is compounded for underrepresented communities who either don't have financial education or circumstantially just cannot uh, be scored the same way as an average person. Then there is also a problem of um, lived experiences that cause exclusion. So there's a lot of financial exclusion. So what we are trying to do at Moneymatics, what we've been doing uh, for the past couple of years, is trying to bridge that accessibility gap. So being the gap that bridging the gap of um, helping organizations and financial services to understand communities better while educating communities to understand services better. Because if you don't bridge that gap, you always have financial vulnerability. So uh, to take an example, if I may, I'll share with you that we are going to run a Grow Your Money Challenge. That's the name of the community initiative that we have upcoming. And we have a few exciting partnerships up our sleeves. But the key concept here is um, coming around to have money conversations in a safe space where we, we help consumers to understand more about managing money in the current circumstances. How can you save money? Where are the deals? How can you um, basically put your money on a diet, so to speak? Limit household sp uh, spending while saving towards preset financial goals that you may have. And then on the other side of that, showcasing businesses or organizations that are able to support communities to understand money better or who have fairer financial products. So if you look at banking or energy suppliers who are on fairer tariffs, leading communities to that. So acting as a bridge between communities and services that can bridge better outcomes. So I am nodding furiously in the, in the background here, Tina. So if individuals who are listening to this how, how would we access money matics uh, money matics sorry how would we access them are you in schools are you in community groups or where would we find uh, this fantastic work that you're doing yes so we deliver we usually work with partner organizations so right now we are delivering several programs at the grassroots we work within the Wester Hills area in in Glasgow we work with other community groups. We also do work in schools. We, we go in and deliver youth programs in schools. The Grow Your Money Challenge is going to be a, a, a hybrid of online uh, presence where we give people access to um, programs, but also in-person events. So we have something coming up on the 17th of, of November in person. And again, part of that is that whole aspirational interaction between community and industry. 
bring them together to discuss things like, you know, how the cost of living could be elevated at the moment. So we can find details on the website. Can you share the details of your website, Tina? Absolutely. It's uh, moneymatics.com and we have the Grow Your Money Challenge. There's a, a tab specifically for the Grow Your Money Challenge on our website. We're also on LinkedIn quite uh, quite a bit and we are looking to start a campaign quite shortly for the challenge where people can sign up and start receiving emails, join our WhatsApp group, um, all sorts. So oh, if you go to moneymatics, M-O-N-E-Y-M-A-T-I-X.com, you can find a lot more information and contact us that way. Fabulous. So sadly, as always, these conversations come, come to an end. And quick question for you. The piece of advice that you would give to that young Tina Matembe is sitting at the the boardroom table of your parents' businesses, what piece of advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> um, I, would, I would not let perfect get in the way of good. We can always, um, this, you're always able to do something, you know, you're always able to do something and we all have a, a, a talent. We're all heroes. Uh, we're superheroes. We have it in, within us to do at least one thing well. So hold on to what you can do well and go for it. Don't let perfect get in the way of good. Oh, yet another one that you'll hear me reciting along, Tina. You're, you're great for these. I'm, I'm always in, in, indebted to your mother with her comment about your network is your net worth. But that don't let perfect get in the way of doing good. I, I love that, Tina. A couple of quick fire questions before we round up today. The first record you ever bought? Was, believe it or not, a 50 cent um album a 50 cent dvd which interestingly my 10 year old went and downloaded off spotify last week so clearly i'm still in vogue <laughs> you, you are you are the cool mum there absolutely now i know you love travel tina i believe you have a scratch map of the world up in your home and you're scratching off where you go but of that uh, world global travel what's your favorite place in the world tina most recently, I've been to Valencia, and that was absolutely beautiful. I loved, 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 loved it. But I would have to be stay true to my roots and say Zanzibar is a beautiful white sands place to go. Beautiful, beautiful. Tina, it has been an absolute joy, as always, to connect with you today. And I have every day's a school day and I've learned so much more about your fantastic business, Money Matrix. Um, really so relevant and it's very interesting to you, the background of how it came about. Thank you for your time today. I wish you continued success, Tina, as you so deserve and uh, look forward to hearing what happens next with the business. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. Always a pleasure connecting in with you and the work you do is absolutely awesome. So well done to you and the team as well. Uh, thank you, Tina. Um, and that's all from this week's Scottish Business Network podcast. Tune in. We have another excellent speaker coming up in the next few weeks. And thank you, Tina, and uh, look forward to speaking with you all soon.
To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.